Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects, and if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is Michael McCormack from Milieu, a creative property development company based in Melbourne. Milieu are known for their award-winning projects such as Napier Street by Edition Office, Whitlam Place by Friedman White, and Breeze Street by DKO and Breathe Architecture. In this episode, Michael and I spoke about how Milieu commissions a broad range of content such as photography, film, model making and graphic design as the foundation of their marketing and content strategy. We looked at the qualities Michael looks for in an architecture practice they're considering for one of their multi-residential projects. We spoke about why Michael believes it's important to tell the stories of their project occupants years after they've moved in, rather than just focusing on the perfect image once the project is completed. And finally, we looked at the steps Milieu took to better understand their values as a company and how they communicate that to the public through their marketing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael McCormack from Milieu. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. No worries, mate. So we've got people listening from Australia, from other places around the world. So it'd probably be a good idea to just start with a little bit of just just maybe a very brief history of Milieu and and, and the business and, and just, I guess, some of the major, you know, you guys have come up to 10 years recently. Just like a little tiny recap of Milieu's history would be great. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, you're right. Um, we're Started in 2010, the end of 2010. Um, at the time, um, at least in Melbourne, Melbourne was kind of the, the development market in Melbourne was primarily kind of going for a bit of a boom aimed at overseas investors, large scale projects predominantly aimed at overseas investors. And friends that we started the business with were kind of working for developers um, doing that type of work. But at the same time, we were kind of looking for our own homes. So we kind of all lived and hung out in the inner north of Melbourne and we were looking for a house. And what became apparent to us is that we had this challenge of not being able to afford an established house in the kind of Fitzroy, Collingwood, Carlton area that we wanted to live. And we turned to looking at some of the developments that we were actually kind of the type of developments that we were developing, which were primarily kind of a investment product aimed at kind of deriving a yield. Um, and what became really clear to us is that they weren't necessarily great homes to live in as a result of kind of driving a yield for an investor. 
So we had the choice of moving further north uh, or further out um, and buying something that we could afford or moving into these kind of investor-grade projects that we were all developing. And as a result of that, we saw a gap in the market, which was really great quality attainable homes in suburbs that we wanted to live below the established house price. So the first project that we bought was in Moore Street and Fitzroy and we competed at auction on a weekend against really, I think, mum and dad investors that were going to buy it and rent it out. And we bought a block of land and put five townhouses on it. And those townhouses, we delivered to the market, sold to owner-occupiers below the established houses in the street. Um, And three or four of them still live there today. That's been our bread and butter, our core market um, ever since. Our scale has obviously grown a fair bit since then. But our, our, I guess, focus on the occupier hasn't changed yeah, absolutely. So you saw that opportunity for stuff that you would actually want to live in and in places that you would like neighborhoods and communities that you would want to live in as well, which is which is great. Was it at that early stage that you started kind of engaging with, I suppose, emerging architects or just really, really talented, like some of Melbourne's best architects, basically, you guys kind of work with over time, but engaging and collaborating with architects, was that something that started pretty early on in the picture as well? Yeah, I think so. I guess like when we started our business, we were also quite young ourselves. So we were just attracted to working with friends and peers. And those friends and peers have kind of become some of Melbourne's best architects. Yeah. So we're just fortunate that we were kind of, we we were growing up with people working for larger scale businesses, like we were working for larger scale businesses. And then we started our own business. Those people also started their own business and we were kind of already friends. So it kind of fell out that way. But there is certainly a focus because of that to try and work with emerging architects. And I think over the, over the years, we've done that really, really well. And the architects that we've kind of sort of invested in and maybe it's been their first multi-res project have then gone on to do multiple multi-res projects, which has been really great to see for them. Yeah. And it's given that I haven't had any sort of developer on the podcast before, I'm afraid that you're going to have to sort of speak for all developers in a certain way, (laughs) which is probably not. This will be your least listened podcast then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but I think it's interesting that the general industry was going towards this yield and uh, this yield driven sort of focus. And I think a lot of architects talk to me about we're interested in getting into multi-res work, but we just think that we're going to struggle to find a developer who's not just going to be thinking beginning to end about yield and that doesn't really fit us as a practice you know obviously it's uh like the market has to make money and everyone has to be profitable in the industry but it's pretty niche to to kind of come along with a bit of a different focus right but how do you sort of see the landscape of the development space changing over that period of time like has your sort of way of looking at things kind of caught on a little bit more in Melbourne at least. When you think a developer, right, you think kind of like blue pinstripe suit looking at a spreadsheet with dollar signs on it and like we're trying to do the exact opposite to that. And I think if you focus on kind of yield and risk mitigation, risk mitigation, yield, 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 you don't end up with a great project. Yeah. Ultimately, you've got to have a vision and kind of believe in that vision. And we kind of call the work that we do creative development. We feel like we're part of the creative process rather than kind of a a developer behind an Excel spreadsheet looking at dollar signs. And we really kind of try and collaborate with our with our designers and our, our, our project team to be inspiring them as much as we can and, and vice versa, them inspiring us to kind of push ourselves and believe in them. But Melbourne, back to Melbourne, Melbourne's super interesting in that mm. I don't know what it is, but 
I have a lot of friends and peers that work in the same space that I do that I think are amazing at what they do. And we've collaborated with a number of them, including kind of most recently near Metro. Whereas I think now you are seeing it in other states, but um, Melbourne was first to have this kind of creative development and this small scale development. And I've often thought about why that is. And Mm. I think like Sydney being the larger capital city and the higher house or the higher property price, there's been a real barrier to entry for developers. Like you have to be really quite an established developer with a fair bit of financial capacity behind you to buy a property and develop a property in Sydney, which can mean that maybe those smaller scale developers that are doing more interesting, intricate things, it's harder for them to get a start. And then the other markets, maybe there just hasn't been a uh, hasn't been a buyer demand there up until recently. But I think if you look in Brisbane, there's some really great development going on up in Brisbane at the moment. Sydney certainly kind of um, improved heaps. There's some really amazing developments going on in Sydney. I feel like it's catching on for sure. Yeah, and like as a small, I guess as a smaller developer in the market compared to some of the more established players, I mean. Not only are you trying to compete to acquire land at a, you know, within your budget, I suppose, uh, and, and develop within your kind of financial resources, but also, I mean, the marketing and advertising around the projects and getting them seen and actually reaching a, a buyer. I mean, there's so much competition out there in that space. Completely. And, you know, also finding ways to be distinctive and stand out in, in, in the broader development market for customers, for, for homeowners is, mm. is, is also, I imagine, quite challenging, takes a lot of extra creativity, right? Yeah, definitely. Like from the very outset, um, we made a conscious decision to build equity in our business brand rather than what other project developers or developers were doing at the time, which was they were doing, as I said, investor grade projects, really heroing the project brand. Like you'd have the amazing model shoot and the project would be called Some Beautiful Girl's Name and it was all about kind of the project. Yeah. Ultimately, maybe the outcome wasn't as good as what the renders and the branding was and we were trying to build equity in us as a brand to give, like, to give us trustworthiness through future projects and merely when we started kind of meant nothing to anyone Mm. But as you continue to deliver projects and you hero milieu as a brand rather than um, any particular project as a brand, all our projects are kind of locationally driven. Mm. But you're right. Like now, I think when we started, we were super good with branding and everyone's caught up. Everyone has amazing renders and amazing branding. And it's hard to distinguish what is a good developer from a developer that's just got a really good branding consultant and really good renders. Mm. So what we try and do, I think the distinguishing factor between us and some of our peers and other developers is that we've delivered 20 projects and you can go see those projects. And instead of just beautiful renders now, we open up our homes. Once we've finished, um, all of our projects are opened up to the public to all and, and also industry. So if you want to come through any of our yep. projects, we'll hold, we'll hold what we call an open home. And we really do that to highlight to people that you're only as good as your delivered project. It doesn't matter how beautiful your brochures are or how beautiful your marketing campaign is. It's what the actual project feels like to walk through and all the details that you can't pick up on the three renders that you rendered, like the lobbies and the bathroom details and all the little things that you don't see in a render. 
are super important. So that's how we try and distinguish ourselves at the moment by our actual completed buildings. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, it, it's pretty impossible to fake, isn't it? It's impossible to fake, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can't fake it. Like people coming through, like genuinely blown away by the real thing. I mean, that's, yeah, you can't, you can't make that up, right? So that's, yeah, that's pretty powerful. So, so less of that sort of individual project-based brand, more focusing around the building and continuing to build momentum around the milieu brand um, as an important thing. Yeah, and even now, like taking that a step further and kind of just soft brand advocates being our purchasers, like we hope that our purchasers are happy um, and love where they live and they'll tell people that they love where they live and they'll invite guests over for dinner and that becomes like a soft advocacy for our, for our work. Mm, yeah. I mean, even if, you know, the the architects out there in the Melbourne architecture scene and the photographers and the graphic designers and the artists, like even if they're not personally going to purchase and live in a one of your projects, I mean, they're certainly aware and following along with the brand because of how you guys collaborate, I suppose, with this broad network of photographers, illustrators, graphic designers, architects, architectural photographers, these creatives that you work with, they are themselves kind of micro influencers, aren't they? And they have their own pretty solid audiences. And I feel like the way that you collaborate with them also helps to open you up to this real niche in the market of your like possible end customer, right? And buyer. Yeah, completely. And they're all like, we just love working with amazing people. Like we feel very fortunate to work with some of the photographers and branding consultants and illustrators that we get to work with and they become friends of ours and Mm. we want to be able to support them in their non-commercial work. So a lot of the stuff that we do kind of extracurricular now is around supporting the people that we work with on a commercial basis in some of their like art-based practice Mm. and that kind of hopefully raises their profile, but really it's a great association for us as well. Yeah, exactly. I suppose on the flip side of it, so they're doing amazing work and they don't necessarily have to have that you know, that CV that just says they've done this a hundred times before, but they're, you're willing to take a little bit of risk there in terms of we identify, you've got the ideas, you've got the, you've obviously got the capability. An addition office example, I mean, obviously their track record in residential sort of speaks for itself. And so you've got a lot of confidence there, but is there sort of a point that they would need to get to maybe where you'd think, okay, a studio is probably established and got enough runs on the board that from a risk standpoint, we would probably feel like we can safely sort of take them on board into a project and collaborate together? Or is it really just going to be, you know, situational, I suppose? I think you've got to, like, you've got to look at the personnel there. Like they might not have a, and the capacity to actually document and design, like there's actually a delivery requirement. Like if it's, it, the, the, the person might be an amazing designer, but they, they, they still need to be able to, in most cases, unless documentation is done by a third-party architect, they need to be able to document the project. So they need to have the capacity to do that. So we'll, that, that's kind of, we do look to see if we feel like yeah. the practice has the capacity to actually not only sort of conceptually design the project, but actually detail the project and document the project. Um, and again, I feel like we can add support there. Yeah. That's probably one thing that we do look for. Like there might be an amazing small practice, but ultimately that just might not have the capacity beyond the conceptual design to deliver a project of the scale that we now do. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Thinking about the way that you guys do actually 
you know, you mentioned project-based marketing a little bit earlier and I guess responsiveness to place and, and connection to that, that neighborhood and that community. And I think, you know, something that really stands out about the way that you guys market work and market your projects is that it actually tends to revolve more around capturing the sort of fabric of that local area. It's not so much about this is leading up to a project being offered, you know, a building being completed pleated or whatever. It's a really, really interesting approach. And you mentioned like architects that have a real presence in that space. But I guess I'm just interested in in sort of when that started to become your approach for going, hey, we're not just going to show here's the hero shot, here's the kitchen, but and here's the display room, whatever it's called, the showroom or whatever. But let's get some photography of this neighborhood. Let's make a film about Fitzroy. Let's, you know, that sort of that sort of approach I think is really unique, right? And and when did that sort of start to come into the mix? So response to place, yeah, response to place. When we thought about what we wanted to do and the type of projects that we wanted to do, we, milieu, if I was French, I think that's how I'd say it, means um, environment or context in which one lives is influenced by. I've said that a lot of times. So for us, like we were thinking about the type of work that we wanted to do and we really wanted it to be kind of uh, responsive and kind of like draw from and contribute to place. And I think in terms of the marketing material that we developed, we were completely aware that people choose to live in a location. Like first off, you, you, you don't choose to live in a building, you choose to live in a location. And that's one thing we really focus on, choosing really fantastic locations. We're super picky about where we develop both from a kind of a more macro perspective in terms of what suburbs we want to develop, but then also into the micro, like is that site a good site to be developed? Does it have good aspect, natural light? What's the kind of frontage and like where is it in relation to a park, a tram, a coffee shop? So location should be the start of people's buying journey really. Like where do I want to live? Yeah. Not what building do I want to live in? Yeah, and it's it's interesting because in terms of my work is all about architects and how they market themselves and their architecture and we don't really take the time to actually sort of turn the camera around and kind of look at the area look at the place I think this idea of responding to place is something that you know most good architects that are good at what they do that's a big big piece of their philosophy as well and I think that's what you and the architecture industry kind of have in common good architects certainly do do that it's about how the the building sits within its context this theme that comes up on the podcast sometimes is this idea that people are sort of losing interest in that in that perfect staged, styled, manufactured, you know, Instagram aesthetic or that image. Would you say you've still got kind of one foot in either camp? Like it's still there's still a place for that, right? And that strong sort of styled image. Or do you, do you sort of see things changing that that's probably not going to feature at some point in the future? What, what do you think? Yeah, really interesting. Like I. Th- I think when we, like even when we do renders now, we really try and think about who we think might live in the space and down to the point where we're like um, thinking about what book they might read, what glasses they might wear, what shoes they might wear and kind of propping the space. So I, like we're super focused on our residents um, and who we who might be living in the space. But like I, I feel like there'll always be, be a place for, for heroing architecture, absolutely. But really, we design homes for people and the stuff that I'm most interested in is how people live in our spaces. 
If you like what you're hearing so far, please make sure to share this episode with colleagues you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast or Spotify app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on the show. I feel like there's a bit of a feedback loop between like the way you guys market, the way you communicate, the values, the architecture sort of overlap of things. It just all fits into this really nice kind of <laughs> thing, right? It's very like very consistent. That consistency of those values is something that, yeah, again, one of those hard to fake things, right? Like where everything kind of lines up at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think because we are a small organization and kind of like it doesn't, like the values are like are represented in the leadership group of our business and it's direct. There's not a large kind of layer of or multiple layers of management over the top. But we're, we're now a B corporation, which for me was super important to maintain that value set. So as we sort of, as we grew from kind of two to three to many, and now there's sort of 20 of us in the office, I wanted to make sure that the value set that we kind of had as a leadership group continued through the business. Um, And I felt like one of the best ways to do that is to make sure that it was clearly kind of documented and communicated. So a few years ago, I, I went on to the B Corporation certification test and me thinking kind of, we like I knew about all these amazing things that I thought we were doing and I did the test and we kind of failed and I was bummed about it thinking like what's going on? Why are we failing the test? It was because we didn't have a lot of our things that we did documented and kind of enshrined in us as a business. Mm -hmm. But what B Corp helped us do is kind of document all these policies and procedures and things that we kind of were already doing. Um, which are now they're kind of they're fully kind of part of us as a business um, and it's allowed us to kind of maintain that value set as we grow, which, yeah, is super important to us as a business. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. And is that something that you kind of have published and put out there or, or does it just sort of filter through in some ways? I mean, is it something that's sort of really directly out in people's faces or is it just sort of there in the background for you guys? I think like we're we're not shouting about it but it's like we do like to talk that we're a b corporation because i kind of i think it illustrates our value set and we do have our policies around um, a number of kind of social matters on our website that can be downloaded so if people are interested in that they can download our um, sustainability policy and the like it's something that um, i think is important to be able to communicate yeah because I wonder if that's something also a lesson that sort of architects in, and owners of architecture practices could also take from this idea of actually documenting some of these things or going through that process. I mean, obviously the B Corp process has been something that you found really valuable, but I suppose like what would even just the sort of simple version of that look like just to kind of get a get a sense of maybe some some way that a practice that was in your shoes where, you know, you were probably f- failing that test because nothing was kind of put put down in writing. I mean, where, where would you kind of begin with that process? I think I'd start with like the leadership group and having a session about what you all think the values of the business are and making sure you're all on the same page. And if, if you are not having conversations about that and ag- agreeing upon the value set of the business, documenting those values and then 
from there, that's kind of the launching pad. If, if you say and sustainability is important to you, or what are your what are your sustainability criteria that you wish to sort of see through the work that you do, or or in the office, or people that you work with? I think that's really great, and it's it's. I think it filters through in terms of your communications as well. This sense of sort of self-awareness and confidence in terms of, you know, we, we, we can kind of clearly say what we're about, which a lot of practices kind of can't. You know, like if we're talking about branding or brand strategy, part of the process that people, practices really struggle with is that they haven't had that conversation about what is this, what are our values as a team, what are our values as a leadership team. They usually get really stuck at that point because they haven't given it any thought. And it kind of, yeah, it can really be hard to move on to the next steps if you haven't even kind of gotten past that point yet. So I sort of see it tying into that sort of marketing and branding communication side as well, even if it's only a slight tie-in. I think I think it's still helpful for anybody to have that conversation, right? Yeah, completely. And like it stemmed from when we started the business, like the concept of milieu is like the built-in social environment. Like it's not just about building buildings, it's about the social mm. setting of Melbourne and we're really interested in kind of contributing to and being a part of the cultural setting of Melbourne. And I, th- I hope it shows through all of our kind of communications that it's not just about our building, it's about kind of everything extracurricular that we do and supporting that in Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, you know, to go from values to probably like more of a money <laughs> type of question, which is probably taking it a different direction. But I, I think it's interesting to get a sense of, you know, the amount of content and branding and essays and print things and exhibitions and deliverables and all sorts of stuff that you guys do like just the content creation and collateral around you around your projects is just completely off the charts on top of renders architectural photography the list goes on i guess i don't really have a much of a sense of what developers traditionally or typically kind of spend on marketing a building but i imagine it's fairly significant so i'm sure like maybe from your point of view it's probably not the most extravagant sort of expense ever as far as industry standards go but but when I look at it from the architecture vantage point, I'm like, oh man, you guys do everything. <laughs> so um, how you guys sort of find that point is that we do whatever we need to do or do you kind of have a rule of thumb or a way of thinking about, okay, here are sort of the must-have elements we need and it's going to, you know, we're going to invest a certain whatever amount, whatever percentage, like what's your process around making those kinds of calls? We definitely have like a project budget, which wouldn't be dissimilar to other developers' project budgets. And then we have have our own kind of milieu branding and kind of corporate marketing budget that is a direct cost to us as a business. Mm. But to be honest, we, we, we work with people like Patty and Wes that just present stuff to us that gets us excited mm. um, and we want to do it. It <laughs> just so, makes you want to do it. Yeah. 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 There's just been so many examples of that where they like present a concept and we don't have the budget for it and we just find a way both on, on both sides that is. Um, I think we're very good at kind of working yeah. with collaborators to kind of make things happen. But it's because we're excited and inspired by ideas that are put to us and we just find a way to make them happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think there's something in this and I want to dig into it because I, I speak to so many architecture practices out there and you know they'll always be out there spending money on photography around the completion of a project. Maybe they'll spend money on getting some professional visualization beforehand which is really lovely but if they if we're you know if the practice is getting bigger and they've got a lot of projects to handle then they might sort of retain the services of kind of a PR company and as you do and kind of get some help on that side of things but 
you know, I think there's something really re- unique about this long-term relationship that you guys have with Piho and the, and the sort of the branding agency approach as well, that there's these opportunities that spring up to do something new and do something creative that I doubt like you guys would have come up with in the office and then gone to brief a designer and gone, oh, we had this idea for a film or whatever, or, or you know, whatever it is. Whereas like you've got them kind of pitching you ideas. And in the architecture space, I don't see people having very long-term relationships with branding and graphic design. And I just feel like there's something there that it kind of gives you guys this like unique creative output that I could almost see architects kind of doing more of, I think. I think there's something in there. Yeah, I think those guys are a huge part of our business, even though they're a separate business. They're, they've been with us since that we, we kind of came to them with a name and a concept of what we wanted to do. And they've done everything since then for the last 12 years odd. Yeah. And they're kind of family in, in terms of the milieu family. They're part of our business. So they're a huge part of our success. And we, we sort of support them in their ideas around our projects as much as we can. And But, yeah, I think we're fortunate in that we've had developed such a strong long-term relationship with not only Patty and Wes, but um, across the board, we do work with multiple different architects across our project, but we have a core set of, I guess, creatives from a photography perspective, branding perspective, communication perspective, even down to kind of more technical consultants and the like that we carry through with us on projects that we've been working with Mm. forever. Um, And that's allowed us to kind of continue to push the limits together. Yeah, what would be like a couple of examples maybe of sort of those surprising creative elements that you've had around projects? A few come to mind that I've seen, but what sort of things pop up when you bring a project to market? Like I know we're talking about the brand is kind of the the main sort of the thing that gets marketed and communicated in, in a big percentage of what you focus on. But when we're talking about the project side, what are a couple of the maybe innovative ways that that you guys have come out there and and sort of taken that to market and done something different there? You know, some little printed thing that you guys did that's kind of a one-time thing, you know, where you guys just did something as a bit of an experiment and it it was interesting. Yeah, like maybe I've got a couple of examples. Maybe um, our first large project, we've done a number of projects before it, but our first large project was Peel Street in Collingwood. It was our first kind of apartment project and it was also, I guess, a bit of a unique project for Collingwood at the time as it was aimed at owner-occupiers and most people were kind of doing investigate projects in Collingwood back then. Um, and the way we marketed the project, which doesn't sound that cutting edge these days, but we basically commissioned Tom Blatchford and Kate Bayless who are actually partners, to do a... We'd had this Melbourne milieu concept where we were commissioning photographers to go and just shoot Melbourne, but it was an open brief. It was just kind of go shoot Melbourne. Um, And we commissioned them to shoot Melbourne. Um, And then we commissioned Dan Hocking, who was a friend of theirs, a friend of ours, also a photographer, to shoot Collingwood, specifically Collingwood. And we ran... We set up a gallery as part of the space. And the way we sold the project was just through the gallery. It was just beautiful um, and their work was amazing and associated with gallery was um, a sales and marketing suite but it was really like that was not on the signage or not anywhere it was about the work that they'd done yeah and like I've seen that done since quite a bit but at the time it was quite unique and people like like how you're selling the projects through a gallery most recently we've kind of commissioned I think um, I think maybe six model makers and creatives and artists to produce models of all of our work and the way we sold um, it was again it's pretty open brief 
Uh, it was super interpretive. Like we didn't tell them at all how, like we just said, here's the project we wish you to model and here's the scale you need to model at it. And some of them are super kind of, as I said, interpretive. You can barely tell they're the project, but they're beautiful. If you know the project, you can tell. Like I, my favourite one is Barry Street, which is just a bunch of bricks, yeah. which looks so good. And the way we sold our Otter Street project was basically through, again, through a gallery where we exhibited all these models of our past work. And I guess what we were trying to highlight was not in like a technical architectural sense, but look at how beautiful these models are and they illustrate all of our work to kind of really emphasise that we've done such a, a, a significant body of work. Um, and that was that was successful too. Man, those are such great examples. We've got a publication that is kind of like, it's actually on a separate website altogether. Um, I think it's milieu.melbourne um, and it's all just about our extracurricular work that we do. But it does tie back to like, obviously it's got links back into our main site. So that's kind of, again, a, a soft way that we're marketing yeah. to a cohort of people that are interested in the stuff that we're showing on that um, Melbourne Millie site. You've described it a few times as the extracurricular stuff. And I think that's such an interesting way to put it. I've had other guests on the show who've advocated for maybe 10% of your marketing budget or 20% or whatever it is, is just devoted to that pretty much as you call it, extracurricular stuff where you're putting something on for the public, you're you're opening up a gallery space, you're putting on an open house thing, you're doing something that's not directly just about getting the next client, but it's actually, I don't really have the words to sort of put around it. What are you doing? You're just sort of celebrating design and Melbourne and the neighborhood and the, you're just doing something. I feel like that really ties into what you're kind of talking about there. Like it's part that it's that extracurricular 10%. Like I don't feel like many architects feel like, I don't know, there's like sort of maybe a hesitation or not an uncertainty about that sort of style of doing things. Yeah. I guess we're interested in supporting the culture of a Melbourne or uh, cultivating the culture of design in Melbourne. Um, and yeah, we we feel like um, those kind of extracurricular things, uh, as I just described them earlier, kind of the stuff that excites us, and mm. we, we can analyze who purchases our projects, and like it's so slanted towards designers and graphic designers, architects, interior designers, or friends of. So in a way, it's kind of it's pretty good marketing. We're kind of like we're we're, we're attracting the eyeballs that ultimately will be purchasing our apartments. Yeah, and that's something that comes up amongst my clients a lot when they talk about who their sort of typical client might be. And quite often, it'll be writer, filmmaker, photographer, artist, entrepreneur, graphic designer, creative people. Creative people want to live in architect-designed homes, right? So if you're, if you're kind of as a business using your resources and your passion to support the creative scene and community in your area or your city, it's a bit of a no-brainer really, isn't it? And it just seems like it's very efficient because, I mean, creating some architectural models, putting them on in a space, even if that was done at a smaller scale, you know, we think about the amount of money that gets spent on renders or spent on, you know, certain things. It's like, eh, maybe if you put a little bit of that aside, you could get some very cost-effective um, engagement and, and and response out of possibly spending less, but getting more from it really. Oh yeah, completely. Like this was... We, we did it at our Otter Street display and it was so compelling seeing all of, it's some of the best marketing that I feel like we've done in terms of to illustrate the body of work that we've done. It was all of our projects on one table modelled and you just got a real sense of the amount of work that we've done. But 
yeah, I think architects should feel like it's a good spend and good to do because it certainly um, attracts the right audience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mike, I mean, I feel like I've I've gotten a good sense of some of the things that you guys do and there's definitely some good ideas there. So we, we could probably finish up pretty soon, but do you have any kind of final thoughts or anything, any any sort of anything that we might have missed or el- anything else that's come to mind for you from this conversation? No, it's really lovely chatting with you, Dave. Um, yeah, thanks for your time and thanks for the interest in, in really and what we're doing. Um, yeah, really appreciate it. No, no worries, Mike. Thank you very much, mate. That was my conversation with Michael McCormack from Milieu. If you'd like to learn more about Milieu, you can visit milieuproperty.com.au or follow them on Instagram at milieuproperty. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you.